Hello, Dance Speak podcast listeners. This episode with Yusuf Nasir is, whew, we talk about a lot of shit. Excuse my French, and if there's a parent driving in a car with a child listening to this podcast, I apologize. But that really is it. We have a lot of loaded conversation that can be triggering. So my request to you, the listener, is that you put your reactivity aside, if any, and give into the magic of conversation, the fact that we can have educated opinions and explore these topics in peace. After the episode, we'll have a final thought moment. Shout out to Jerry Springer for introducing me to final thoughts. And then if there are dialogues that need to be opened up, I invite you to share on the Dance Speak page. Email me at dancespeakpodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, I'm just present to how grateful I am that I can really get people's thoughts and have something that is so much more than generic. Enjoy. Elite Friedlander. I've worn many hats in the dance world over the last 15 plus years and have created Dance Speak as a platform for people in the dance industry to share their stories and blueprints for success. So listen up and get ready to be inspired, learn something new, and get personal with the people behind the movements you love. We've headed into this into this time where it's like Everyone has to be acknowledged at all times because our egos are so fragile. And that is so confusing to me because I don't think anyone's ever catered to my sensitivity or emotions. Like when I think about the body that I'm in, like the body that I'm in as a man, as a black man in this country right now, I have, no one's ever fucking catered, ever catered to my aesthetic. It's, all, it's always been, you know, you have, I think of you a certain way you're not acting accordingly, we have a problem. Mm. And so with that being said, that almost even makes me more afraid to ever speak. Because it's like, I already know how this is going to be perceived. Perhaps you are on the perfect journey for you to have longevity. And if you had had it any earlier, you wouldn't have had that. But maybe you're having that journey to develop you so that you can grow old knowing that your work is received and appreciated. And maybe we could step away from the idea of talent versus no talent and have it be about you having something to say to the world and share with the world and connect with in the world. So, like, even let's just put talent aside. Do you have something to say? Yeah. And is it important enough that it's kept you doing this for over a decade, way over a decade? (sighs) Let's get to the question. screw, (laughs) Screw even the concept of talent. Yeah. All right, so dance education, dance slash any other education. Uh, uh, So by dance education, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and my first dance class was a tap class, and it was at this place called uh, Studio J in Berkeley, California. Um, I loved the place. It was awesome. It was this cute little office complex in Berkeley, and the dance studio had, like, two dance studios in it. And it was so fierce. It was, it it, it it inspired the hell out of me. Like I love, like I loved it. Uh, even though I took tap, I really wanted to take ballet and jazz because when I saw it, it was so fucking fierce. Now, mind you, I grew up in the late '80s, early '90s. I'm a kid of that generation, so like, 
I love the way they danced then. To be around that raw Paula Abdul-esque jazz funk and to see people not just one not just two people it was everyone to be five six seven eight years old and look at that you're just like and I'm talking about these were fucking men and women it wasn't like this fucking Disney kiddo I'm a 12 year old but I'm really 30 look that keeps being permeated these were these were men and women built motherfuckers like that was kind of the moment where like if you were a gay kid you knew you wanted to suck a because you're, you're coming into the studio and it was like wait that was gross because I don't always want to say, okay that's weird but it's <laughs> because I don't want to sit up there and say wow that's the first thing I think about when you think about your homosexuality but uh, it was like being a kid and being around that type of energy was so transformative and I loved it I just absolutely loved it but I started with Tap her name was Chris Bell I remember that my mom couldn't really afford to pay for my classes and I think if I really sat down with my dance teacher at Axer I think I think she would tell me that my mom actually never could afford to pay for my class and it was all free Mm. and so from 7 to about 12 years old I tapped and I took jazz on the side with Liz Brillianti who is up in the Bay Area those were my first two teachers and I was always a tapper in a jazz arena right out of the gate. I jazz, loved it. Jazz arena. I was kind of a jazz arena. Now, the funny thing is that I actually was pretty fucking bad at jazz, but I, in my head, thought that I was good at it. And I didn't really know that until I got to the San Francisco, uh, until I got to the School of the Arts of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But up until middle school, I thought I was pretty okay. I would go to dance camp every summer. There's this camp called Casadero Dance Camp. And I would, you know, be around these adults and artists and I would learn all these things about placement and yoga and Pilates and your chakras and shit. And, you know, I'm kind of just a black boy from the hood, quote unquote. So I'm really like, I don't know what the fuck you white people are talking about, but we're in the mountains and singing and shit and (laughs) learning about dance. After that, when I got, I think I was pretty much at that studio up until the end of middle school and then I left. And then I got into SOTA, which is the San Francisco School of Performing Arts. Basically, the highest. It's basically the Guardia of the West Coast. I actually went in as um, a musician. I used to play the trombone. I know you can't get any dorkier than that. And I was playing music actually during the time that I was training. I was actually the first chair trombone player in like the All City Band. It was really yes. like I, I know it was kind of. I, I was like the geek of all art geeks. It was very. It was very severe. Um, I just had a love for art, but long story short, I auditioned as a musician, and although no one really knew that I took all these dance classes outside of, you know, just trying to fit in, and then once I got to that school and I saw the dance department, I was like, okay, I'm going to transfer. So I transferred in my sophomore year. It wasn't until I got to that department I realized just how behind I was in so many technical aspects, how much my facility wasn't necessarily made for technical dance. I didn't have the best feet. I didn't have the right hips. You know, I mean, quite as kept, maybe I wasn't the right color. I don't know, but it just seemed like, you know, I kind of walked into a world that was very elitist and it was elitist against the body that God put me in. Mm. And so I got very deterred around 15 um, to the point to where there was a second where I thought, I don't know if I can really make it in this. And then I started doing my research about older dancers that kind of were like me that just worked really hard. 
so I did it. And Can you list some names or yeah, I super think, inspired by that? Um, I think the people who really inspired me. I would say probably almost every male dancer in Alvin Ailey, mm. which is why I ended up going to it after high school. <laughs> um, because, you know, being black and being someone that enjoys concert dance, when you look at kind of the, the construct of what the perfect concert technical dancer is, I definitely didn't fit the bill. You know, big ass, big thighs, big hips, big flat feet, thick neck. You know, I, I don't know if God was trying to make me a man or a woman. I was like, make up your fucking mind. <laughs> so I, uh, I remember, you know, looking at a performance of Alan Ailey on PBS. It was a great performance. I think I was 12. And I looked at all of these like big ass like fucking men. I think it was a performance of like Desmond Richardson was in. And I was just like, and Troy Powell and you know, Bernard and fucking Matthew, um, Matthew Rushing, Anthony Burrell, who's out here in LA doing the commercial work. I mean, and people really don't know the extent of his technical training. Like, I mean, say what you want about him, but that dude really is like a fucking Giselle. He, he is like, it's like a five foot three fucking angelic Russian ballet dancer also inside of a six foot three gorgeous black man. It's, it's, the most striking, beautiful thing you could ever see. I, I, I remember he had auditioned for Sleeping Can Dance and I saw his solo to Pretty Wings. And when I saw him dance around these other, like, and I hate to say it, short ass, squeamish, the most bland, insecure, white, contemporary male dancers, and I saw him, I was like, how in the hell are they going to put this man on the show? Who the hell is he going to partner looking at this demographic? If the moment you saw him, it I was like... I don't even know if he made it onto the show. He didn't make it on the show. And I remember looking at him going, and it didn't surprise me. But if he did, he would rock it. We'll, we'll further get into that because I actually had a student, black male student, who actually auditioned for So You Think Season 12. I don't know if you saw the solo on... I don't watch... No offense. I no, he didn't look at the show. He didn't get on the show and they never aired it. But we turned it into a concept video. Oh. And it's now, two years later, resurfacing as this great video... And it's so funny because I remember him telling me and my other students that went to the So You Think audition, they said that he literally got a standing ovation. They literally said his solo was absolutely incredible and they still didn't let him on the show. And I was like... Because it's not about dance. Like, I, I don't think that a lot of the dance shows... I'm always afraid to shoot myself in the foot with things. Yeah. So that's why I extra admire just being truly transparent. Yeah. But I don't watch the dance shows because they're not... I'd be watching it for the dance, not the fluff. Yeah. And I've seen such phenomenal dancers, and I'm biased in that when I watch dance, I want to feel something. Right. I, I don't care how many turns you can do into tilts. And then if right. we even talk about it, like, I like to see some masterful technique versus just getting around a million times. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. My soul just doesn't let me watch the dance shows because I feel like it's prostituted dance. At mm. the same time, I appreciate what it's brought to the dance world, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is a solo. It's amazing. I, wow, I'm like, imagine if there was a show that was just about dance. Like, really just about dance. So I went to San Francisco School, School of Performing Arts. Um, that's when I kind of realized that I had a lot of work to do. I had a lot of catch-up to do. To the point to where I almost felt like it might have been impossible. And so, mm. you know, I took it seriously, but I don't think I took it as seriously as I think I should have. But I still think... No, I did. I think in the back of my mind... I still had a very defeatist attitude about it, but I continued because it's like, I think this is something that I could be good at. 
everyone around me in my high school could see that I was actually having some physical deficiencies. But again, I loved it. So long story short, I graduate high school. I get a scholarship to go to Ailey. I spend, I spend a summer semester there, and I absolutely loved it. And I did not want to leave. Unfortunately, who ran the school at the time just didn't like me. So I ended up getting to stay the year. <laughs> but I look back on that time, and I think to myself, wow, I really loved that period of training because that's when my body transformed the most. I had never been able to do a tilt before I went to Ailey. So I literally was just like, this school is so great. Like, it, the training that they're giving is so amazing. I love it so much that when I went back home, I told my mom, I think I'm going to move, you know, to New York and try and really train. Because I think that that's the place that's going to improve my dancing the most. I wasn't so concerned about working, but I, I was more concerned about moving back to New York and training. So I went back, came back to SF, took classes whenever I could at San Francisco Dance Center and Academy of Ballet. Um, and then around 19, I moved to New York. It was probably around the time that we met. And I went to Steps on Broadway. It was pretty much the first place that I landed. I remember you from Steps. Yeah. I was on a scholarship there um, doing work study, work study slash scholarship, work study pretty much. My classes were free and I took classes religiously. And even during that period, you know, there was kind of the thought that, you know, will my body ever really change? Is my body really made for this? And I remember people would look at me and go, you belong in L.A. They would, uh, the classes I was having to take, Joe Lantieri and Susie Taylor and, you know, Pef Modelski and David Howard. There were so many, there were so many classes that I took just to try to get better. And I think I did to a large part. So I remember one time I was taking Susie Taylor's class and she came to me and went, that is like the best time you have ever done a combination. Like, you looked absolutely amazing. And I was just like, wait, I actually look good doing this? And so then I finally realized that maybe, maybe there was some promise. Maybe there was some promise in doing this. Because I'm not going to lie, those classes during that period from 19 to 22 once I moved there, were kicking my ass. They're hard. They were hard. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to put anything down to any of the classes here in L.A., but when I think back at the time that I was just trying to really understand and educate myself about dance, those classes were hard for me, and I, and I would not trade it for the world because I think, and maybe that's what you see in my work, I inject that amount of work and strength into it because I physically remember when I was trying to really be a dancer and really push my body what it was going through. And now looking back in hindsight, I loved it. Now, with that being said, did I necessarily work as much as I wanted to? No, but I definitely gained the training that I wanted. And it's funny because... Recently, I saw a photo of Derek Mitchell, who's a choreographer that is now choreographing Hamilton. Yeah. He gave me my first job in New York when I was 19. He did a show called Thin Line that kind of ran off off-Broadway, um, and I was the character of Carlos. Yeah. And I would say that I would compare it to, like, a dance version of Rent. And when I look back on it now, I love those people that I met. It was a great experience for me. I love being a part of something new. I was excited to do whatever I could, and it's great that I'm now looking at him. You know, we're talking about, God, this was 2004. It's 2017. You know, it's taken him this long to get to where he is. Yeah. So, you know, when I look at him and I think about the time, I mean, at the time I was 19, he was 28. 
So, you know, sometimes I kind of have to also keep in perspective that things take a long time. Getting off that subject, so about training. So I basically trained at Steps, um, took classes at Ailey whenever I could, but, you know, slowly but surely, I started getting work. I did that first show with Derek, and then I ended up getting a job in Europe with David Parsons for a festival, nice. Decent Ramo, who runs the David Parsons Project in New York. Um, and I ended up becoming the assistant choreographer. So not only was it my first dance job out of the country, I became the assistant choreographer. So although there was a lot of periods between Derek's show and also Buddha Stretch, which no one yes! would know. <laughs> no, they better. I've been trying to get an interview as hard because of where I am. He was yeah. um, like my second hip hop teacher. First oh, is Robin God. Dunn. Uh, Robin Dunn. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that... That was a great generation. That period in New York from 2004 to about 2007, 2008, if you were a young person, an old person, but especially a young person, that was a great time to train because we weren't really into the social media age yet. We weren't into So You Think You Can Dance yet. It was just starting. I used to be able to take Mia Michaels class at, at, at Steps. I took it all the time, and she loved me. I was like, hi, I love you. Love me. I love your style. I, uh, For any young person that wanted to learn about dance, and it's nothing against the people who teach now, we learned a lot. It was... Sorry. No, go ahead. It was just deep. I went to college in 2006, so I feel like my deep, like... New York training was more before that because then I was like mm-hmm. in and out of town. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember like going to class and go, so I like taking hip hop from Robin Dunn and I was like, Robin, like, where's the underground at? And I would yeah. be like 14 and she yeah. was like, I don't know how to help you, but I'm gonna try. And it was like, finally I found the underground scene and I had to conference, like sneak house, house dance conference. That, the, I, some of the nastiest freestyles that I think have ever graced this planet. I got the privilege and the honor to watch be brilliant in that club. I fucking loved House Conference. It was amazing. And just like, I remember going to a ball with, I don't know if you know Samara Lockeroo. She was like, like crazy, like high up, you know, in the whacking world and created a version. Me and her were both just training and like taking Brian Greene's class. And then I remember- Keep going. <laughs> I remember us going then, like, going to the ball and, like, mm-hmm. hitting each other up at 2 a.m., like, yeah. ready, and then meeting yeah. up and, like, going to the ball and being like, we don't know how to Vogue. <laughs> figuring out, you know what, literally figuring out our freestyle lives, but it was in the actual scenes, mm-hmm. and you didn't have people from the studio and you in town there. It was, everybody was from New York and yeah. actually in the scene. Yep. It was still, like, a scene. Yep. It was a scene because I think... As much as people don't want to talk about it, there was kind of a beauty in the elitism of dance. There was a beauty in it kind of being insulated. You had to go out and seek it. It wasn't just delivered to you on a social media or a television Because it was in its culture. It was in its culture. So that's why I think that, I, and, I, and I honestly think this, that we are the kind of, I think, the last generation of people, young adults, or fairly young adults, that were able to experience dance in its purest form. And that being celebrated in its purest form. You know, I kind of used to get angry about it, but I like that people kind of used to be extremely disrespectful to me. Mm-hmm. I used to kind of get mad, like, why do people not think I can dance? I'm looking at myself in the mirror, but it wasn't about that. It was about, but what's the essence? What's the groove? What's the vibe? What are you feeling? You look like you're thinking too much. What's going on? I don't feel, we're not, I don't feel you. 
And so that is when I realized in that period and even now thinking about that period that all those things were said to force me to really get better and to really understand the styles I was studying. So I would go to steps and I would take the ballet. I would take the contemporary. I could take the modern. Then I would leave and I would go to house conference and freestyle yeah. and love looking at Brian Green and Ejo and Marjorie, God rest her soul, and Buddha Stretch and Randy. Yeah. Randy. 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 There's, there's two Randys. There's a Randy that used to be in the mop top group, still is, that old studio in Japan. Okay. And he was really close with Buddha, and he would come around whenever I would do a job for him. Actually, that's another job. I think it was my second or third job. Actually, Buddha Stretch hired me to dance for Thalia. Yes. It's Spanish artist. Me and Noel Bahandas did it. Yeah. It was me, Noel Bahandas, Cheryl Murakami, and, Twe- and Tweety. Yes, Tweety. <laughs> oh, my God. And so I was like 20 at the time. I think Noel was like 21. And uh, I remember in that very moment, I was just like, I want to do this for the rest mm-hmm. of my life. At that time, I want to do this for, I will, not the rest of my life, but for as long as I can. No, I'm not the star, but there's something about being a dancer and being on stage and having this ability to move and be kind of like the one of the most important aspects of the show mm-hmm. in my head I thought that because you're young and you're dumb I was okay with that so I think you know when it comes to my training I got the best of both worlds you know I came from a primarily you know tap jazz hip-hop and not really Mm hip-hop background then I moved to New York and I pretty much you know took everything so you know to say it I would say that in my training I have had been lucky enough to learn a lot so I'm happy that it shows up in my work because I've actually I was able I was lucky enough I had the privilege to be exposed to a lot and then how um as a choreographer I'm so curious you have very interesting ways of it's not formation the way that you have dancers move around the stage Mm -hmm. And like intertwine choreography and then keep moving. Where does that come from? Like you're masterful mm-hmm. at that. I just really love formations. And I think that comes from my love of hip hop, as far as hip hop from kind of the community, like pre professional amateur background. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when growing up in San Francisco, um, well, the San Francisco Bay Area, I was in a group called Culture Shop. Oh, okay. um, and so Kim Sims Batiste, Dominique Batiste's mom, okay. used to run it. Oh. And so she was like my first introduction into hip hop companies and hip hop as choreography and not as a freestyle, you know, sport of mm. sort. Although I would never, you know, necessarily, you know, call it a sport. But in a lot of ways, you, I guess you could. I get it from that period, you know, going and looking at all the old culture shock showcases. So really for it, like hip hop, like yeah. competition formation. Yeah. Like really, really that, that honestly is what drives, even in my own contemporary work, it could be what, whatever style I can have access to. I always try to implement that edge of hip hop when it comes to staging, because I always feel like hip hop choreographers who understand, you know, visuals it's always good to always keep it moving. And a lot of time, I think people in the more concert realm of dance don't always see the bigger picture when it comes to formation changes. So I definitely get it from that period, you know, growing up around that early culture shock period. I mean, this is back when Tabitha and Napoleon were running Las Vegas culture shock. So we're, so we're going so far back, it's not even funny. I mean, now they're like five-time Emmy-winning choreographers and producers and directors, but... You know, I, I almost can say it's almost like a badge of honor in a sense, you know, being 12 and 13 years old. And I remember being in their house and, you know, looking at them 
before any of this, you know, had happened. It, it definitely comes from that period of, you know, the amateur hip-hop competition aesthetic. So I'm going to ask you kind of some quick, like, fire round whatever questions. Just a few. And then I'd like to get um, to the story of the... Um, tour if that sure does, okay what i don't want to do is have you talk about anything that like doesn't feel right to talk about oh no okay. I, I think i think i don't want to pimp your experience no okay <laughs> no, not at all i'll be happy to talk about it awesome what's your superpower <laughs> what's my superpower i think my superpower is my ability to make people feel uncomfortable and intimidated without me even knowing it okay what's your weakness sometimes caring too much what people say about me What's something that you wish people knew about you? That I don't bite. Mm-hmm. What's something that you wish wasn't so obvious? Being black. There's no wrong answer. <laughs> what are so you lived like a while in New York, LA, and San Francisco? Yeah, grew up in the Bay. Yeah, and then lived in New York and I live here. Awesome. What are what's a characteristic or two that you've absorbed from each place? Um, I think San Francisco, I absorb that, you know, people tend to not really like to be too aggressive or too angry about things, Mm -hmm. which sometimes can drive me crazy because it comes off as a form of passive aggression, but it's really because people just really want things to just be okay in a genuine way. You know, they, they don't, they want to really understand, they want to be, they want to be understanding. You know, and I think sometimes that might be perceived as passive aggression, but it's really not. It's just I just really want to thoroughly understand where you're coming from because, you know, we're San Francisco. We're the hippie capital of the world. We're all about peace and love, and so it makes sense. I think New York, what I got from there is that you need to have a bit of a thick skin about yourself, and you need to, at any moment, be willing to fight, even if you don't want to, because nothing's going to be handed to you and society does work a certain way but if you're smart you can succeed that's what I get from New York what I get from LA is let's try our hardest to dress reality up in the most fantastic way possible but at the end of the day this city works just like any other city it, it works like any other place in the world. You have good people, you have assholes. I think sometimes, you know, L.A. kind of gets the bad rap that it gets is because we are so afraid of not being able to succeed in our art because you're dealing with, probably over any city I've been in, you're dealing with a lot of sensitive people who have moved to a city to take on careers, certain careers, that put them in a position for everybody to know them and love them. So that means that we all are pretty much surrounded by extremely sensitive, egotistical people. That creates a very interesting dynamic, mm-hmm. which I don't think is necessarily bad. I think that it just makes for an interesting dynamic. And it is a city that unfortunately definitely sees things at face value 80% of the time until somebody with some status deems someone worthy. And then, you know, I guess L.A. presents itself in some way. So I think if I had to compare all three cities, you know, 
San Francisco is where you learn about people. New York is where you f- is where you learn how to fight people, and LA is where you figure out how to way to fight people with a smile. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the overt sexual space that I'd say popular dance is in now? Overtly sexual. You know, I feel like in a lot of ways, dance has always been overtly sexual. So then I have like a... So this is my own... It's a pointed question. Yeah. yeah <laughs> um, it's a very loaded question. It's so loaded. <laughs> but so I don't know how to... Uh, I'll, I'll find it, okay? I don't know what the line is, but I feel like when I used to take class... Like, if a dance was sexy, I don't know, maybe it had more technique to it, but it mm-hmm. still had, like, a mystery. Yeah. And then, because I'm trying to think even, like, like her classes. It wasn't that sexy back then. It was very, it, it was, it was I, I call it, it was very thrashy. It was definitely more, I say, gay punk inspired. That's just that what I call actually, it. Yeah. Like, gay punk. I call, I call it kind of when I see sometimes gay men dance or I see a style of jazz funk that's rooted more in, like, masculine femininity not women because there's a difference yes huge difference i call it like gay punk rock dance because it's like you would have to be around gay men that are punk rock stars in their own right to really absorb that energy like when i look at john Tane ramon they're like gay punk rock stars i'm like because it's like only only a punk you have to be a rock star to really go out there and like just fucking kill it like that with no regard for whatever the fuck the norm is and so there is the beauty to that so yeah, I think when it comes to this current generation, but now now it's just like straddling the floor and twerking yeah, like every yeah, other clip I yeah. see, and I'm like, but dance is self-expression and it is sexual yeah. and dance is sex, but like there's a seven-year-old doing that and there's something different. I don't know. I think it's like when twerking got called twerking for the masses, mm-hmm. and then after that, like I every class I'm like seeing coochie. I don't know how else to put it. I think what's happening. Maybe is that the question? What the fuck is happening? I think what's happening is basically the question that you started with. You have a group of people that are teaching classes that have never really trained a day in their life. Just because you have taken an assortment of different choreography classes, that means that somebody's take on putting steps together does not mean that you are learning what we call a codified style. Mm. Horton, Graham, Lamone, Gaga, Luigi, there's so many, you know, Nikolai, O'Donnell. Although these things are old and they're played out and they might not necessarily seep themselves into this world, quote unquote, when you pull from those styles, and sometimes I do, you get a different flavor. When you see people putting movements together, that kind of what you're talking about is just sexual for no reason. It's because they're pulling from the steps that they have learned or they are pulling from the steps that they think they think makes sense because nine times out of 10, someone beyond them was doing it. And so it kind of is at a detriment to the kid doing it because they actually think this is really this awesome way of self-expression. Yes, it is self-expression. Is it awesome? That's debatable. Yeah, I do look at it and I go, you know, I can't get offended by it because I'll be the first to say, given whatever show I might direct or produce soon, I might have a really raunchy ass sexual section in. I wanted my last show to end with a dude being hung from a noose butt ass naked. I'm not kidding you. And so there is an element of sexuality that always goes into dance. Right. Always. I think right now, given the generations, what we're trying to decide is, is it sexual in an artistic way or is it sexual just for shock value to pull a stunt? And I think what we're looking at right now is that we're just looking at a lot of stunts. We're not looking at you doing it in a way to enhance 
whatever you're creating, you're just trying to pull a stunt. Because I feel like a jerk for even thinking that way. And I'm like, what is it that I'm picking up that's differentiating two different things? Because I look at like an Aisha Francis and hers is like very, very sexual, but it is so grounded in... It's the jazz. Yeah. It's the jazz. Like I love... Uh, it is... She jazz. teaches technique. Yeah. It's... I, and you know, I, lo- I, I fucking love Aisha I Francis. love her to I death. I love Aisha Francis. And I, every time I run into her, it's always in some passing, but I'm always amazing. just like... I lo- she always has the most brightest spirit, extremely intelligent. And as a black man, you want to, you know, bring it into, you know, brother, sister. I love an intelligent sister. And I don't say that often, but I, she's just a lovely light. And so I think, again, the difference is that she's using it to enhance what she's trying to move. She's like, I feel sexy. I know I can move like this, but God, I just want to grab myself like this. And mm, as opposed to, ah, cut on a rat to song, bitch, and let's just fucking twerk and stick my tongue out. There's a difference because what Aisha is coming from a genuine place, oh I'm a woman. I am grown. Yes, I, I, I experience these things in life, so I bring my life into it. But that one aspect of my sexuality and me as a woman is not going to dictate this entire work of art. Are we using sexuality to push art forward to enhance story, or are we just using sexuality to pull an antic for shock value with no substance behind it whatsoever? And, and so I don't know. You almost have to kind of ask the artists that create the pieces that you're talking about. You have to go, well, what was your thought process in doing it? Because we don't know. All I can do is look at it the way anybody looks at a piece of art. And I don't want to say judge it, but come with my own feeling or thoughts about it after I look at it. Yeah. And that goes for my own art. And that's another thing, too. I feel like sometimes in dance, when we want to give an opinion about dance, people think that, oh, I don't want to say anything negative. It can't be negative if it's coming from a genuine place, even if it doesn't agree with what everyone else is saying. I think the only time you get people that are giving you opposition are people that just can't handle not being praised. And that's when I really am hands off. I think that if you're doing your job well as a choreographer, people can sit back and talk about it. At the very least, yeah. like instead of everybody having the same opinion about it, they can mm-hmm. sit back and talk about it. And it may be a, well, did you like it? Did you not? But it can also be like, oh, well, what did you think that me- like means? Do you think it was intentionally that way? Like yeah. a, a conversation can be had and then it illuminates something. That, yeah. That's what I think really good art does. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely starts a conversation. What advice would you give to yourself 10 years ago? Finish college. Try and work as many jobs as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. To maybe save a little bit more money, tell more people that you love them, even if it's random, and thoroughly understand that there are seasons and reasons for everything, and that you can't always beat yourself up so much to where you kind of drive yourself into this really dark negative hole. What's your creative process like for A, when you're just creating, let's say, a piece? So it could be for a showcase, and B, when you're creating a show. When I go into creating a piece, I think the first thing I think about is what can I do, and I've been criticized for this, what can I do that maybe resembles what everyone else is doing but is so completely afar apart from what they're doing? Now, some people would say, well, why are you creating art for other people? And it's like, I'm not. But I don't like adding to the deck of cards that's already being laid out. I want to maybe start a new pile of cards or 
maybe inject a card in there that's a little too big or a little out of place, but it still fit. It's just right. It's like Goldilocks. Um, so I usually start with the song, like any choreographer, and then I try to come up with a concept and maybe some my own detriment. It's something that I think people can wrap their brains around that's tangible that you would never think you can create a dance about. Like the Catholic Church, like race relations, like cancer, like bullying, like gay marriage. You know, it's almost impossible when you get to a certain age to live in the world around you and not want to create what's around you. Um, So my process is, well, what's going on in the world? Or at least what can I see that's going on in the world that I want to create into? Because sometimes, as I've been criticized with uh, by Tony Bellissimo, who I absolutely love, you said sometimes you're a little ahead of your time. No one's really ready to see that. It's like, but I see it now. I see it and it inspires me now. So I think my process is a great song, a great concept, but then in a lot of ways, life. What What's going on around me and mm-hmm. what in life is affecting me enough to want to get up get in the studio and want to come up with steps and then for a whole show like how the fuck do you come up with a whole show you mean a whole 40 minute show I mean, well let show. me tell you through your skim so. through of the shot a silent mm-hmm. shot what was your take from it what stuck with me was let's take a moment and media which we're like so readily consuming let's look at how it can actually be impacting a person mm-hmm because in my in my own way I could relate to feeling othered mm-hmm. and then how that otherness goes from that like looking from the large scope of media to the individual then going into the psyche of the individual mm-hmm. and feeling uh, othered from the inside out mm-hmm. that idea how you can be othered in many different ways and freezing a moment in time almost and actually expressing yourself because those are the moments where you could um almost never stop and just be at the consequence of it. We watch TV for sometimes our whole lives and we don't actually stop and think, what's the impact and what do I have to say now from this place? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, being isolated and dealing with like the voices in your head or Mm -hmm. um, being talked about, now you're stuck in the TV and you're Mm -hmm. being watched. And And, and that's, in a lot of ways, that's exactly what, you know, the shout was. It was my... I want to say my breaking point. It was kind of my turning point to where I had to say to myself, okay, where am I right now in my life? Let's assess. Let's look at your, just look at your life, Yusef. And when I sat and I looked at my life, and as morbid as it sounds, and as much as people are going to go, you know, it's here we go again with this morbid shit. I had nothing. I have dedicated a decade of my life, and I have Nothing. That's what got injected into that show. How does it feel to work your ass off and still end up with nothing? How does that look? What is the psychosis a person goes through when they wake up one day and realize everything that I thought I was doing to get to this point meant nothing almost? Mm. Because I ran into a situation where I lost my shit. And now I'm this. I, I'm nothing. I, I, I'm nothing to you. So it sounds almost like, not to skip over it, but it sounds almost like the show really came out of a space of necessity. 
Yeah. And it seems like very organic to create something going through your process or your stream of consciousness. Yeah. Versus actually intellectualizing it. Yeah, I definitely didn't intellectualize it. In fact, I didn't pre-choreograph anything before I did the entire show. What? Nope. Wait, so you had the dancers in and you workshopped it? I had the dancers and I workshopped the entire show. I spent 16 hours a week with them. Well, I work at AMDA, which is the American Dramatic Arts Conservatory in LA, and they commissioned for me to do the whole show. And so I spent two and a half months putting that show together at 16 hours a weekend. Uh, My boy Keon, who won uh, the eighth season of Slate Theme Can Dance, fabulous, fucking awesome ballet dancer, great guy. I said, you know, I want to do a show, but I want to bring in somebody that can really enhance their technique so that I can really put on a show that really has meat to it. And it just doesn't kind of sit on this average, borderline, mediocre level that I think, you know, I'm sorry, quite as kept. L.A. dance almost sits in a little bit. Yeah. That's very important. I thought that was really important that I I needed to be in tip-top shape. So going into that, no, I had nothing pre-choreographed. I know that I wanted to use the knife, Silent Shout, the whole album. It's all music from one album, and I was going to begin and end the show with Bjork because I love Bjork. And what came out in that video was all just one stream of consciousness from beginning to end. That's dope. So why don't we get into the story of... Again, I don't know who's going to hear this, and so... I haven't talked about this really in huge detail to really anyone, and especially not anyone to where I know that it's going to be heard by the people who are involved in it. Up until that moment, my career was pretty much like just up and up and up and down, 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 up, down. And so when I booked the tour, uh, and this is right after I actually did Lady Gaga right before, I was like, okay. Maybe this is meant to be because up until that moment, maybe a year before, I started to get into that mental state again. Like Yousef, it's like it's almost like you're beating a dead horse right now. You're beating a dead horse. Like you felt you were auditioning and not getting. And not not even auditioning. Even the job time again. It's like where's this going? Oh, so what factor? The the, so what like what's going on? So I booked. I was excited because although I've toured before and I've been to Europe before, I hadn't done an extensive tour that what was projected. Like we're talking like 77 cities, like spread out over the next five to eight months. That's pretty significant. So I booked the job and I remember before I actually booked it, after the audition, they called us in a week after to do a workshop. I remember being in that first rehearsal. I remember kind of getting this feeling like I'm really excited to this. I want to book it. But there's some interesting in, in energy in the room. You know, you had a good group crop of professional dancers there. And then that crop was mixed in with, you know, other performers who weren't dancers. They were just kind of performers for just who they were. There was who is her friend, who was just kind of this, she's this personality, she's this figure. She's like almost seven feet huge, huge, just, she's just this mammoth of a woman. And I could see the allure with that because there's something so unique about her. And then she had models and then she had her twerk team. So early on, after the workshop and then going into the first week of rehearsals, it became very clear that, you know, we were all coming from completely different worlds. And with that being said, I think I'm being nice about it. I could see where the clash was about to happen real soon. And I say this without being ugly. There were behaviors going on in that rehearsal that if any human resource representative in any real job would have seen, people should have been fired the first, second, or third week. 
there were behaviors being that were going on in that rehearsal that literally in the 10 years and I really was at a solid decade right then and there at 20 I was 29 at the time that I was like this would not fly anywhere else and I kept thinking to myself why is this not being checked management being aware of what's going on why are there people in this room that clearly have made it clear they do not know how to conduct themselves in a room full of people they are highly disrespectful they use way too much foul language when it's not called for and not to be ugly they're bad at their job they're bad at their job i mean dancers are 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 pumped into this idea that we need to be afraid to speak and we always have to be afraid to book the next job that's what keeps us complacent that's what keeps us quiet that's what keeps us you know doing our job and so to be in that environment it was due to me because it was like wait a minute is this is this a free-for-all because if it is i'll join the fun like can we can people we people being like bitchy or it was it was sorry bitch. i'm the one using i'm the one cussing in this podcast you know, i don't think i don't it's it, it was it was bitchy it was disrespectful it was it was rude it was uncomfortable it's just i i think it was one of those situ- situations where you brought people that were from so many different walks of life that it almost was damn near impossible to make us all get along and I, and I don't want to sound negative because you, you don't want to say that people don't have the ability to get along. We should have the ability to get along. But this was one of those situations where I couldn't see that gelling. It wasn't just her Baker girls. There were even professional dancers, people on that job that I had known for years that, you know, I'd always had really odd, you know, trying relationships with. And I never understood it because... I'm always the first person to say when I do something wrong, I will admit that I did something wrong. And I'm not saying that to say it. If I did something wrong, I did it wrong. I never understood, and there's one person in particular I'm thinking about, that I never understood exactly why we did not like each other. I try to go exactly what did we do to one another that was so egregious within the recent of that that made it through. Because before that, most of those people I didn't see on a regular basis. I knew they were professional dancers. I knew they were good at what they did, but we just didn't hang out. It just kind of was what it was. You know, I never like to say, you know, I don't like those people. I think that's a harsh statement. I think what I say is I know people are good and I know people can be great. But all I know is that they're not my kind of people that I want to spend my time with. But I was forced into a situation where I had to spend my time around people that I didn't want to spend it around. Um, Moving into the story, it became very clear that I had, in order for me to keep my job, I had to suppress it. I had to suppress myself. I don't want to get into any one specific thing because we'll be here here all day. So let's get to the root of it. So it gets down to opening night and I quit. And I don't want to do this tour. Coupled with the fact that I'm really uncomfortable here, uh, frankly, I just don't want to be in a 21st century minstrel show. What came down to it that it was like the night of? Because that's like pretty... That's pretty severe. Yeah. I mean, one, I was dealing with the brink of a nervous breakdown and I wasn't aware of it. Something just in my spirit just had to get out and had to leave. Something in my spirit told me that, Yusuf, you are not meant to be here. This is not for you. You are not going to have fun. And there is no way that you're going to be able to mentally dupe yourself into being okay and staying here for eight months. For eight months. There's no way 
for five to eight months, there was no, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. Coupled with the fact that I didn't, I just didn't like it. I just, there was something to me that didn't like it so much that I just had to leave. And also, there were some other, you know, business, if you want to call it business things that were going on. What was the biggest issue was that, the which I thought, we hadn't signed a contract before we had stepped on stage. Mm-hmm. None of us had actually seen our tour contract before we stepped on that stage. Once I actually got a copy of it and read it, I was like, no wonder why the agent hadn't signed it or given it to us. Why would we sign away our right to all DVD sales, whether it be a buyout or residuals, all additional money for any TV appearances, like any and all things to do with our likeness in addition to what we were doing in that tour, they did not want to pay for. And I was like, okay, I can, this is a problem. So coupled with that and coupled with my feeling of feeling like a fucking coon um, in the show, I pretty much left. I quit, got on stage, performed two numbers, literally got back to the tent where we had to change. And when I tell you, I had a migraine that was so beyond painful. I literally, when I, and it took me time to remember it. I was like, remember hitting the leg of the medic there. That's how much pain I was in. Before I knew it, I had completely blanked. There were bits and pieces I remember. I remember being brought to the hospital. I remember being intaked. I remember being with the tour manager that was with me. And I remember, like, I I think I was trying to pull my IV out and there was blood everywhere. Like, I was just, like, my body was just erratic. Um, And I think that had a lot to do with the argument that I had right before the breakdown. Um, When I told that I was going to quit and I said in front of like I literally was talked to in such a way like I don't I don't think any human being should ever be talked to in that manner that I was talked to do I understand they were angry yes do I understand the severity of the situation yes but that it, it was just downright just dehumanizing and it wasn't just them it was several people included in that process it didn't come out until I was actually at the hospital that he was like, I remember hearing the conversation. I can actually, I think this is why you might have had the breakdown. So I was like, okay, so you heard all this. This was pretty much what's been going on the past couple of months. And you didn't do anything. So I'm the one sitting up here in this hospital in Vancouver, Canada, in British Columbia, with IVs hooked up into my fucking arm. Because no one ever wanted to acknowledge what the hell was going wrong. Uh, so I stayed in Vancouver for almost a week. They flew me back home, and how much time do we have? For like the, and I also want to be respectful of your time, but I'm here like an hour. Um, and you, <laughs> I'm, and, I'm, and I can totally you. It's, it's no, just, no, it's kind of a lot like, to say. Yeah. No, but this is um, like speak. Speak. Okay. Yeah. I'll keep speaking. So. Um, it's not in vain. I, I want to um, pause and say, like, what you're talking to, at least, like, to me, what I'm getting also is it's easy for one to kind of, like, have the hopes and dreams that are painted for us and what an illustrious mm-hmm. career looks like. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you get there and it's just, like, not it for you. But it's the most confusing thing. Very confusing. Because everyone around you is not saying it and it might be the place for them. Um, and then as an artist, I think that, like, it's just your artistic path was not there and you could feel it that's what it sounded like it was really knocking against you but it's just not right but you can only know it for yourself and sometimes the way that you find out is in an ugly way 
And this was probably the most ugliest way I could find it out. And you're I, human. Uh, also, you're human. Uh, see, and that's really funny because that's actually not the response I was getting after it all went down. I, I guess I became not a human because this is when I really begin to see exactly how people respond to something that has to do with mental health. Even if it's brief or if it's something that's long term, like anything that has to do with that, you begin to see people's response. When I got off the plane and back to my mom's house, my phone blew up. This people was, what happened, Yusuf? What happened? Oh, my God. I heard you went fucking crazy. Like, you started, you know, going off on people. Like, you just didn't like being there. You called it a minstrel show. And I was like, yeah. Because it became very clear to me that I was not there because of my talent. I was there to fill a role. And that's been even more highlighted recently when I came out with that article on Billboard talking about, I don't really listen to hip hop anymore. It doesn't really, you know, coincide with my with my liberal views. And like, you know, I want to get back to my roots. I was like, wait a minute, bitch. You could sit out there and fucking march in the women's march. You can denounce, you know homophobia, you can denounce sexism, but you can't understand why the group of majority black dancers that were dancing your tour might have felt uncomfortable given the fact that you were taking the culture and you were bastardizing, because let's be real, the bitch can't dance. And so you're sitting here and you're going to really tell me as liberal as you are, you cannot step outside of yourself and realize that maybe what you're doing is not all that authentic and you are using it and you are appropriating this art and this type of art from us to highlight your career to advance your career, to look that you are with it. Because I highly doubt that she keeps in touch with any of those or with maybe any of the boys that were on that tour. I mean, look at that show. If people want to call it entertaining, great. But for someone that puts himself on this pedestal to be liberal, I have a problem that you can't see why that would be disrespectful to a group of black dancers. When, first off, you you can't twerk. You, you, you're not... there's nothing really ethnic within your move, which is fine. Be you, be the artist that you are. But it became very clear to me there that this was highly contrived and it was extremely forced. And I think it also begs the question, like as artists, kind of where do we draw our own personal lines? Yeah. Because it's not clear at all. Like you're a dancer, you're professional, you audition, you get on a job, you're doing your best. The contract situation that you were in sounds very difficult. Yeah. I um, was going to be on a reality show years ago and yeah. I saw the contract and they had these crazy clauses in it and I was like, I am not a slave. Like, I'm yeah. fortunate to be born in this country at this time yeah. and, like, be able to pursue what I want and those yeah. contracts that are binding like that or, you know, how much money and time and everything have you spent on your dance training and now they're mm-hmm. going to utilize that dance training, make money. By and- putting me in a purple shark outfit and then when I'm not in that, I'm going to be in a gold chain, a Gucci man shirt and alligator shoes and sunglasses. And if I'm not in that, I'm going to be in pink boxers, white tennis shoes, a gold chain and sunglasses. And then when I'm not in that, I'm going to be in a dead president's outfit with Nixon on my face walking around in stills. And I, I think it's, and I'm not, like, I'm, like, pause that, think about it, and just for the sake of, like, you know, um, that's a lot. And then I think it's important, that's why I think these this sharing is important because dancers and artists, like, we need to know that we can check things and politely step to the side mm-hmm. when we need to because every job is not for you and you are going to live in your own skin with what you've represented for your whole life. Right. Shows that hire you, they're done with you and they're not concerned with what happens. It's not their job to be. I've had times, not on that scale, where mm-hmm. I wish 
I had listened to my inner voice and be like, don't do this because this isn't what you represent. And it was knocking at my door the entire time. But, you know, it's I'm so, it, it's hard to turn down $2,500 a week mm-hmm. when you have been living in existence that's been teetering on the verge of like not poverty, but homelessness. I think that dancers, whoever might be listening, need to be aware of the reality of what it means to pursue a career in the dance world that that it might again it goes back to what I was saying you know the only thing that really separates anyone from anyone else is what opportunities are presented to you and you might go a long time without an opportunity being presented to you so I didn't want to go into the situation and think and think ugly of it at first but over time over time it became clear that this just wasn't for me do I wish that it would have not went down the way it went down? Of course, but it did, and that cannot be changed. What I do think shouldn't have happened was the amount of disrespect and shit-talking that followed it. You know, nervous breakdown of the brief psychotic breaks, no one wants to talk about it, but these things happen to people. These are real things. Anxiety, stress, and mental health in our country and depression, these things are, these are real. And I, I was getting back things from my friends talking about that people didn't believe it. They didn't believe that this person, that I was miserable. They didn't believe that I was feeling a certain way and that this was just an antic. I'm like, why the fuck would anyone put their career on the line for an antic? I knew what I was doing before I did it. It was like you said, you are literally shooting yourself in the foot by leaving this job right now. But I would much rather, and I said it to myself, I'd much rather be penniless, sitting back in my studio downtown, eating pasta, and, you know, God willing, dating and mating beautiful men, <laughs> then, then, then to be miserable doing something that I have loved to do since the time I came out of my mother's womb, to do something that I have literally dedicated my life to, that I've waited and pined for to, to express to as many people as possible just to be miserable. I, could, I couldn't sell my art like that. I, I couldn't. Now, people want to say that I couldn't hack it. You want to say that I'm too emotional. I, I, I was too cerebral. I was thinking about it too much. No, I wasn't. I was merely reacting to the environment that I was in, and it became clear that that was not the environment I wanted to be in in that time, in that space, doing that. Moving on, you know, what I didn't mention in the Glamour article is that by the way, he was uh, had a beautiful article written in Glamour about this experience, if you want to look it up to the listeners. But then the thing is, I kind of give that away in the sense to where I give away the opening night. You know, it was February yeah. 14, 2014. It was Valentine's Day. And I always say, I guess it was the day I fell in love with myself because it really was the day I fell in love with myself. Like, my bag was packed. I was willing to damn near just give up my whole career, have people say whatever they wanted to say, just so I can get my peace of mind back. Like, it literally was like, oh, ooh, th- this, this was the place. Moving on, I cannot imagine for the life of me why people think it is okay to say whatever they want about a person when it is dealing with someone's mental health. We need to lift this stigma. And I say that because there were people who had known me for years that were like, well, that just confirmed it. You know, I kind of always knew it, but, you know, I was like... Wait a minute, everything I did was confirming the fact that I would have a complete, complete nervous breakdown? Then how the fuck have we even been friends? 
How the fuck have I even allowed myself to share space with you if you've been looking at me this long and I've had this extremely negative perspective on me? Oh, so you think you're doing me a favor? And so that kind of steps into the environment of Los Angeles. Again, it's all meant to be that we're in an industry where people are moving out here to make income from something that in a lot of ways is an intangible. Dance is this very intangible thing. And so we're and we're trying to turn it into something tangible. So we're always fighting even when we shouldn't be fighting. And when I came back, you know, I heard it all. He's crazy. His career is done. I never really liked him. I always thought this about him. By the way, I'm out of just, you know, whatever You're out that of is. Oh, a thousand percent. I had yeah. no idea this had happened. Oh, yeah. Like, this, this big. This, but I'm kind of in my own. No, that's circle. fine. But I mean, I kind of want people to know that, you yeah. know, it kind of goes back to that whole thing. People will always shame you for the one thing you do wrong, but not the a million things you do right. Yeah. And this people also was, love gossip. Yeah, they people love all oh, people love gossip, and you know, so it, and, and it was, and it was, and that's another thing too. I hate giving whatever enemies I know or don't know that much ammunition, because of what that's essentially what you're, especially someone that could be very petty and very spiteful. You're giving them a whole hell of a lot of ammunition, and LA runs a lot off word of mouth. So I knew the moment that I got off that plane, and I sat in my mom's house from that moment on for the next five months. I was like. I might not see the effects of what happened now, but I'm going to see them in the next couple of years. It will prove itself. A month into me recovering back home, my agency dropped me. They didn't tell me what the reason was. I found out later that it was, I'd have always felt this way. I think that they were told that, that I was on drugs. I wasn't. I don't do drugs. I've never done a huge amount of illicit drugs. Yes, my early 20s, everyone experiments. It's New York City. It was APT. It's the best place to be. Uh-huh. Oh my God, APT. <laughs> it was so it was APT. You know that that was that whole experience. But when I got older, I didn't really feel the need to do those things. So again, it became like this huge. I felt like this attack on my character and my reputation. And again, I'm not saying my reputation is squeaky clean. You know, I, I'm definitely not saying that I was so loved and admired. But that mattered to me that that was what was being said. It mattered to me that I would run into people I've known forever and they would give me this look like, I know, I know what happened. I'm going to be nice, but I think you're pitiful. And I'm not making this up. This is something I'm conjuring up. You could, I could see this. Human beings know. We know when there's a disconnected energy. It's like, you know, someone going and running into O.J. Simpson after he committed murder. It's like, hey, O.J., how you doing? Hey, we should hang out. Okay, see you later. Motherfucker, he's not going to go and hang out with you. It's it's one of those situations. Mm-hmm. I took five months off from the tour, and then my friend uh, Darius called me up and said, do you want to go to China and do a club tour with an up-and-coming artist? And I said, yes, anything that can get me out of this country. And so I spent three months touring China. I went to about 56 cities and did 77 shows. The pay was terrible. But, I've been uh, in China before. Yeah, I, the pay was terrible. Dancers, if you do it, do it for the experience, not for the money. And be careful with your lungs. Be careful with your lungs and the mildew. So I uh, I did that for three months, and then I backpacked Europe for a month. And I just mm-hmm. needed it to cleanse myself. And I'd say this, put this in the article, and to really ask myself, are you okay with what just happened? Are you able to sit with yourself and let it go? And I literally said to myself, fuck no. Because no one just gets up and has an anxiety attack. People just don't get up and have nervous breakdowns, especially not at 29. If you look at the statistics, when it comes to psychology, from what I've heard from different physicians, 
um, and psychologists and therapists that typically what happened to me happens to people between 18 and 23. And it happens to women more than it does men two to one. That's actually in the DSM was the Diagnostic, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual on Mental Disorder. It said that this is something that's, that doesn't typically happen in my age group. So I knew for a fact that I was pushed. The environment, and again, it's too much to get into detail, but I was just pushed. I didn't really start feeling stress. I never really felt stress or anxiety at all. I remember during this situation, people would ask me, well, maybe you were just stressed. Maybe it was just too much for you. Maybe you're just overwhelmed. Maybe you just couldn't hack it. And I was like, wait a minute, motherfucker. This is not what this was. Stress and anxiety, we have to separate them. You know, anxiety is different. It was just, I was very anxiety ridden. I was loathing. There was a bit of fear, but it was also was just this, it, 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 the environment was just this cloud of negativity and evil. There was just this, I don't want to go to work. I just did not want to go to work. I just did not want to show up and be a part of this anymore. Well, something that I've learned about myself and I, I kind of like hear yeah. a sense is that I, I just have a line where if I feel like I'm being like dishonest to my heart, if I'm going against something that's deeply in me, my whole being goes against it. And so I, I figured out like really my path because I will work my ass off and I will sacrifice and do all that stuff. So I know when I'm resisting something, it's something else. Mm-hmm. And it's not been a continual problem. I've just learned kind of my, so to speak, my lane. Right. But if I was asked to do for a bunch of money, like get up um, on stage and do something that feels like disrespectful to culture or my culture or anything, mm-hmm. I would have a really adverse reaction. Yeah. And if I did it a few years ago or five years ago when I was really pushing, mm-hmm. then I would have said yes, 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 because mm-hmm. I want to be good. And now I've learned just my boundaries. Mm-hmm. How old are you now? 28? Um, I'm turning 30 at the end of the year. See, so you're at the exact age that this happened to me. And so you're right. I felt like, and I said it to myself, if this would have happened years ago, I think I wouldn't have been so kind of dead set in where my mentality was. But because, and not that it's a bad thing, so much life had been lived, it was hard to turn that off. Well, the only reason also I've gotten to my point the reason I have the clarity is it's, it's a different story that I'm happy to share like after whatever. I dealt with Lyme's disease a few years ago mm. and it took me out like heavy for a few months, but it took me and then I had a relapse of a year and a half to two years to feel normal again. And when I was like sick and in bed and thinking of how hard I had pushed myself when I was feeling run down, mm-hmm. I had immediate like access and clarity to what is for me and what is not for me. Mm-hmm. And so after I got better and seeing how precious your energy and your time is, Mm -hmm. it was a shortcut to like, oh, I'm not even going to try to do X, Y, Z over here. I'm going to go for these things over there. And it just had me operate differently because I felt I had like stepped into a different planet for a while. Mm. If not, I would have kept on just trying to be good. Like we're conditioned to be good. Good boy, good girl. Do good at your job. Please people, don't upset anyone. Yes. And that works when you're like not spilling things and not stealing things at the age of 10. Mm -hmm. But then when you get on, you're into your career, uh, it's not about good boy, good girl anymore. It's a bigger picture. It's It's a way bigger picture. And, you know, I felt like I made the decision where and. And not to say that, you know, I'm not a good boy, quote unquote, but I just, it's didn't, just more I didn't, complicated. I didn't want to be a good boy yeah, yeah. anymore. I didn't want to see monkey, see monkey, do yes, yes. And it's so funny. Once I leave her, I actually have an audition with her for a commercial. Yes! 
<laughs> six o'clock. So, because it's funny, you know, we actually have talked. Oh, God. We actually ran into each other, um, you know, some months back. And I always felt a certain way because I always knew in the back of my mind that I don't think that they chose me to do that to set me, set me up to look like a fool. I, I, I knew that for a fact, but it just so happened that that was the environment. Like it, it hurt me that it had to happen then. And I said it to them, if it would have been a choreographer that, and not to say it sounds so ugly, that I didn't give a fuck about, I don't think I would have cared. I'm like, whatever, your opinion means nothing to me. But that situation mattered because again, dancers need to start claiming this more. We work our asses off. Let's stop acting like, yes, it's great that we can make money from it, but we have to start taking ownership of what we're producing. That way we can actually get what we deserve. That doesn't just go for dance. That goes for choreography also. We have to start being realistic. We work our asses off. Let's stop acting like what we're doing is just as easy as flipping a burger at fucking McDonald's. We work our asses off. This is a very unique set of skills that we possess. Do not let anyone fool you. Let's get out of the matrix for a second. Dancers have to start being more powerful. Like we we can't allow ourselves to think that we don't have a voice. And that voice can't be just to legalize music videos every five years. There's, there's real things going on. This is a job, period. And when you look at it from that perspective, that's when you realize, that's when you realize that, wait a minute, I've been getting fucking duped. This would not be acceptable in what we want to call the real professional world, in the nine to five world. We are at the bottom of the totem pole, mm -hmm. so we cannot speak that is the only way that I can rationalize that dancers, for the time that they've been here, for the amount of work, I mean, that tour rehearsed for two months at six days a week, at eight to 10, for the boys, it was 10 hours a day. Again, I'm not against that because I like to work hard. But when you look at what's going into it, how is that really adequately being compensated? The band's not spending that much time as us, and they're making some two to three times more than what we're making. That's the thing, like, I kind of stepped out a few years ago of even, like, being on that path because when I got sick, I was like, oh, I don't have any money saved up because I don't get paid enough with the dance jobs I've mm. done. So after pouring everything into it, and you need to have rest time. You need to take care of your body. Yes. Like, I don't have the funds from it because I keep on doing things to build my resume, to mm -hmm. be good. Like, you know, I'm not currently booked on something, so I'll take this thing I'm given. I'm told that I should say yes to everything. My agency will look at me sideways if I don't go to an audition. Right. And just seeing that, like, I, I literally just stepped out and was like, let me go. Like, my heart and my soul said, wear your own cap and go into the creative side, the teaching side, not out of a lack, but because you, you love it and you don't feel those same feelings that way. And then just mm -hmm. be a free hippie dancer. Yeah. Like, just free. And if you book work, it's yeah. that it's meant to be great, but I'm no longer attached that it needs to be my job. It's so funny that you say that because, you know, I was talking to my dance mom recently and she even brought it up. It's like, you know, that show, The Shout, just my life experience up to that point. It's just, you know, you've been in this really dark place. There was something a little bit more effervescent about your work before it. And I'll be the first to say it. Your work was so much better than now. It doesn't do it for me. There's this, you're just not there anymore. Mm. You're not there anymore. And 
she's right. I'm not. You know, I, I can luckily say that I definitely am in a brighter, a little bit more happier, positive place. Now, with that being said, you know, I definitely still suffer from things from that moment. I still have these bouts of of anxiety attacks that I never had before. And that's been since the tour? Mm-hmm. I have these bouts of these, you know, acute and sometimes large anxiety attacks that affect me now in different ways as I get older that I, I never experienced before. Like, that, that, that breakdown literally has left a lot of residual effects physically in my body. Hmm. Yeah. It was, it was severe. I mean, it, it's... People really cannot downplay the importance of establishing a good environment for people to work in. You know, yes, we are strong, but there are limits, and even the strongest people, I don't think for a second behind closed doors, they haven't gone through this. We just don't talk about it because mm-hmm. we've, we've shamed it so much. You know, I used to say when I first came to L.A., it's like it's one of the other either people misunderstand me or they frown upon me. Take your pick. Why, why can't it ever be that you just see my work? Mm-hmm. Even an artist that I worked for, uh, Jesse and the Toy Boys, right before she opened up for Britney Spears back in 2011, before the job was pretty much taken away and stolen from me. Yeah, that's LA. Uh, and yes. I, rem- I remember, I remember she had said to me, "Youssef, I don't see why people just can't see your talent." And I knew what she meant by that. She was saying, in a nutshell, they want to see everything else about you. You're black. You're gay. You're opinionated. You might talk a little too much. You might talk too intelligently. You might be a little too aggressive. You might be too intimidating. Oh, you might be too uncomforting. I was like, why can't they just keep the fact that you were working your ass off trying to put a show together for next to nothing? They couldn't see that. So I think it's important with stories like what happened to be said, because it always comes back to the only way that that was able to happen for so long. And the only reason I even had to take action like that is because this has been perpetuated. What happened was serious. It's not something to scuff at. And it's not something to downplay or moan at. That was serious. That no human being should have to go through. Especially when all they want to do is succeed in what they love to do. And that's pretty much that situation in a nutshell. Of course, I can give you more details. and well, I can always give more yeah. detail. But I think the root of it, and I guess we can wrap up this whole scenario, is that dancers, choreographers ones that I know for a fact that inspire me that have not been able to kind of see the full potential of their light don't be afraid to fight Mm -hmm. and with that said accept what may come from you fighting because unfortunately and this might be morbid tomorrow is not guaranteed Why would I sit somewhere and sit in shoulda, woulda, coulda when I have nothing? Why would I sit in shoulda, woulda, coulda, I hope this happens to keep my mouth shut when I'm dying inside? Like I'm physically dying inside because I'm trying not to be difficult. I'm trying not to be the angry black man. I'm trying not to to, I'm trying to be liked. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that's the dark side of trying to be liked, that we need to suppress ourselves. And recently, you know, I went through a situation where I submitted to So You Think You Can Dance, and I got a lot of negative feedback. 
And it made me for a second go, well, damn, like, then, then what am I doing? And maybe, maybe I, my shit work really is shit. But then I look at the show and go, this is artistic. This is, this is, we're making the intangible tangible. So then the real question becomes, why are the powers that be that control just that particular institution? Why are you giving them the benefit of the doubt? Why are they getting the opportunity? But when you look at me, you don't see beyond maybe the color of my skin, maybe the tone of my voice and the perception that you've created about me that might be so strong, you might not see my work. You just see someone beneath you that's fighting for an opportunity. Oh, that's sweet. Here's a pat on the head. I'll look at your work. I'll entertain you for a second. But in actuality, I don't want anything to do with you. And I know that's harsh to say, but in a lot of ways, that could be the only reason that explains that a person, I guess like myself, that's been here 10 years, has been here, and in all honesty, despite the jobs that I've booked, there's still a miss. Again, you see someone like, he's 10 years older than me, and he's just now getting celebrated for his work. And he, honestly, right now, over all the people that I'm inspired by, he inspires me the most because he never gave up on who he was. And that is so powerful. That is such a powerful message to send out to anyone, young, old, damn near dead. Let them feel the vibrations in the ground. Um, Because it gives people like me hope. Now, with that being said, we are two different people. We are in two different bodies. We are in two different aesthetics. So although I'm inspired by it, there's still that part of me. And maybe it's something that as I get older, I really will get rid of it. I'm like, but he's white. As dark as that sounds like, but he's white. Yousef, can you really compare yourself to what your career may be compared to what you're seeing with him? And I don't know if there is an answer. I can't argue that because I'm not in your experience. So, yeah. I, like, I, I hear you, and what's in my head is, like, I have my own reasons. Just, you know, when I see sometimes where people are at and I self, you know, I compare and I'm like, but they have this and I have that. Yeah. They look like that. I have my, just so you know, yeah, I have my own sets and we're like, you know, in different places with the way we look and our backgrounds and yeah. stuff. And I have my very strong reasons as well. Mm-hmm. Just to my like, oh, they're more socially acceptable. Oh, they're taller. Oh, they've dated that person. Like, they're skinnier. They're skinnier. <laughs> they, they're the feminine idea. And, and, and again, you know, it, it's weird for me to say it because it's not like being in my own skin. I haven't accomplished anything. That's the weird part. Yeah. It's like, Yusef, why are you even entertaining that thought when you, as who you are, have been able to accomplish some of the things that you've wanted? But because I've seen the amount of work that's been put out to accomplish that sum, again, you have to entertain the thought. Well, I mean, like, it's undeniable when I see, like, dance movies that come out, um, the color situation. I'm just like, it's a movie about hip-hop and almost everyone's white. (laughs) You're talking about Step Up? Yeah. Everybody's white and then there's Twitch. I mean, that's pretty much what I usually see. It's like, so it's all white. And then Twitch is there. And it's like, and there's nothing wrong with that. But again, it's sending, that sends messages. It I, does. And, and, and again, I don't think, I don't think always the people who are creating it are necessarily always conscious about it. Yeah. Because I think sometimes people don't want to bring up race and aesthetic and looks 
at all because it's so sensitive, but this is the time that we're in, again, history repeating itself, is because we think that that's what everyone is actually thinking about in the moment that these decisions are being made. I don't think that. I don't think that a group of people sit around and go, let's get 90% white people and then Twitch. But I do think <laughs> that they're saying our demographic is, let's say, middle America and who like, who are they going to want to see on the screen and what are they going to look like? And see, that's where I almost have to call bullshit on that because the way I see it, do you think Steven Spielberg was really worried about what people thought when he did Schindler's List about what middle America thought? But, do you think that Steven right. Spielberg gave a fuck about what they thought? It doesn't have to be like that. Right. But dance movies, a lot of dance movies has fallen into this like... How, I will. I don't know also who's funding it, but it looks like they're looking at a formula because they're very safe. Yes, they're very safe. I mean, we. I've talked to several television executives about this, and it's not so much that media doesn't want to be different, but they want to be different in a way mm-hmm. to where it invites the, the 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 general public into a public discourse. Okay. It's like either we're creating a public discourse that's kind of positive or we're creating it that's going to be negative. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But we're trying to get a general public involved. The way I call it when it because art and entertainment, I always say you can't have entertainment without art. All entertainment is is art turned into commerce. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. And when I look at what's out there, it makes sense. I call it all lives matter art. What we're looking at is All Lives Matter art. We're not looking at BLM art. (laughs) We're looking at art that can throw a dart at as many people as possible and offending everyone, thus offending no one. And I think that that works sometimes. Maybe it works clearly most of the time, but then you start running into a wall because you have bound yourself to being able to just say something. Not, we have to say it, but we have to say it going up and down the mountain, through the rivers, up the creek, sitting on the tree. We gotta say it there. It's like, and then and then back down the valley and then pay the prostitute that we ran into and then we finally get to actually saying it. And then I'm like, wait, why couldn't we just walk across the street? Yeah. Like, why do we have to do this when we could have just went here? So I'm gonna bring this home. Because I'm like, I'm in this conversation, and I'm like, oh yeah, we're recording a podcast. But that's how I like it to be. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to touch on before we wrap it up? And, and no pressure, and this doesn't have to be no, a one-time thing. No, I think... Um, I want to make sure that you feel completely heard, and I know that you, a few days ago, you went to the hospital, you had yeah. anxiety, and you felt like this is going to be a good place to speak. So I want to make sure that you feel like you're breathing. I feel like we've like... I think we've covered like it. We really covered it all. I just, I don't think everything has to do with race. As much as I may bring it up, that's actually at the bottom of my list when I enter into a situation, whether it be social or business-wise. That is the last thing on my list. But it usually gets close to it because I'm always sitting there going, "Well, how can this be if all other things are in place?" I have, industry-wise. I remember I had met five years ago. I was 26 at the time. They had saw a piece that I did at the first World Dance Awards, and they said, we loved it. We want to bring you for a meeting to sign for choreography. I was like, yes. Never happened. Fast forward five years, they signed a new choreographer by the name of Now, work I like. But there's a part of it that I look at that I'm not going to lie. I go, there is a lot of me in this. 
things that I was trying to do, take hip hop and house and put it in with technique and make it a, a concert dance experience. And so it's hard sometimes. Look, and same with Strange Fruit Piece. It's not so much I hated the piece. I didn't. But he was given this opportunity to take on this topic. Why? Why am I not being given the opportunity to take on these topics and present work in the same scheme or opulent platform as people who typically are white? Does that mean I want to do, and this sounds stupid, work that you would consider more Caucasian? No. It's just that I've always have noticed in LA that there's a lot of segregation as far as work goes. There's majority black people and Hispanic people doing hip hop and then with the typical with the occasional white person that just, you know, feels themselves as urban. And then there's this kind of jazz concert world that's majority Caucasian and it almost seems a little elitist. Like I, I hate to say it, but I think we almost kind of don't notice the fact that there is there is a huge amount of segregation in dance and that it's not really cross-pollinating as much as we think it is. Um, so the most important part to leave with it is that I think that we need to be more honest about how we can connect it and by connecting it, being honest about who actually is getting the opportunities to push dance forward. Again, I can't control the executive producers of Los Angeles. I can't even control the dancers that I picked to do my pieces. Recently, I did a show and they bombed so bad. I was like, hell, the one thing I thought I could control, I can't control, which actually started this new bout of anxiety. Again, these conversations are hard because you never want to seem like you're bitter about something or that you feel like you've been left out. Because as we said at the end of the day, Everyone has the choice to do what it is that they want to do. And we have so many platforms to put our art out, whether anyone likes it or not. But as I said to myself recently, that's not good enough. That's, that's just, just being here. And my being here somewhat beneath, that's not good enough. And the, when I started saying that... It, I start almost saying, I don't need your compliments. I don't need your pity. Because if that's what is defining your support for me, then I don't want it. Let's work together. I think that's what everyone really says, is that let's work together. Let's actually do something. Let's not all just sit around and have a compliment fest and then go our own ways. Yeah. There's too much talent here. There's too much there's too much talent here. So again, with that, with all of that, be still optimistic cuz there definitely will be moments and I'm now getting out of it. I'll be honest, at 33 from 2033, I'm just now starting to remove myself from the mentality and the emotional and energetic disposition that I was in after that. Never forget that dance is fun. Somehow, some way, we get out here and we forgot. We forgot. I forgot. I forgot. I forgot that dance is fucking fun. I mean, maybe some people think that's crazy, but it was like, what? What but it happened to me too? Right? Like and what? To, sorry. After my like feeling broken for a long time, and um, it, it was I got stuck in 
feeling like I needed to preserve myself yet be a certain way mm -hmm. to book work and then be good enough but be like fit in well enough but be unique enough and all this crap and I stopped having fun I started feeling like a rat in a rat race yeah and then my takeaway like in this newer part of my life is that yeah is that what that? happened and literally you go to yourself and you go what happened and so I think again you know I think Sandra Chavez always says this quote a lot like life doesn't happen to us it happens for us yes. I know it's an old quote but like she really I, I see her post sometimes and she really drives at home and that sounds to me whenever I read that it's I like that it. sounds like a woman that has been through it and I love that she does not sugarcoat that she is real and I appreciate that in a human being it's really easy to stop having fun and the moment that you do it kind of almost makes sense that I'm not achieving the goals that I'm achieving and that I'm not interacting with the people that maybe I think I should be because Yusuf, are you doing this because you love it and it still makes you smile? Does it does it make you want to get up and make people feel good? I don't even want to do choreography. Can I just listen to a song and just be like, ah, <laughs> I'm grooving right now, but you, you, you have to remind yourself. And it came to me the other day and I was like, maybe the writing on the wall, maybe, is that whatever commercial or large success you were envisioning just might not be it. And maybe you might end up being a Picasso or a Van Gogh. Maybe you might not really see the effects of your art until you die. As dark as that sounds, it's a thought that has passed my mind. And that's okay. But then I almost got a little happy when I said that because I was like, then, bro, what the hell are you waiting for? Then you really should just be going for the motherfucking jugular. Fuck it. Piss everyone off. Because, and, and as dark as it sounds, I just buried a friend the other week, Eric Brown, who was a dancer due to colon cancer. And, and that was kind of like, what, a, what validation am I going to keep sitting around and waiting for? What? What, what exactly? It's been, it's, it's all, that writing is clear. You waiting around for the validation you think it's going to prove it's not happening. Which is why I am not against being completely butt-ass honest right now. Because I literally might leave this apartment and someone might fucking run me over. No, it's not happening. I'm not saying it's going to happen. But I'm like, not okay say, with that. And, and you know, but, but the thing is I that... I get what you're saying. But though. of course, it, I, I would hope so. It, it's... We have to start eliminating the fear from the dance industry. Yeah. Because that is probably the number one thing that is perpetuating where we are. Fear. Yeah. That's Period. I agree. Period. We're afraid. We're afraid because as people don't want to admit it, I sometimes look at my friends would be out of we be out of restaurants and they pull out their EBT card. There's nothing wrong with having an EBT card, but let's not sit there and try and pretend to be glamorama and I know you're broke. Let's get honest about where we are. It's fear. That is the only way that, that can explain where it is. And yes, I know there's people making tons of money off social media. I know there are choreographers that are working consistently and making great money. I know there's dancers that are working consistently. But being one of those people that used to work consistently as a dancer, fear kept me going. Fear. I gotta work. I won't eat. I can't say that. I gotta work. 
I have to go to that audition because this is my career, whether I, so I've chosen. Um, so I think it's our duty as older people to start to give a younger generation the feeling of taking ownership of their talent and not being afraid to use that talent to propel them forward and not take a back seat to their talent due to fear. Mm. I think that's a good way to stop. Yeah, it's so full circle. I love it. My last two just simple, simple questions. How can people follow your journey? (laughs) Um, Well, my handle is why not Yusef. Um, It's on Instagram. That's my Instagram handle. That's my Twitter handle, even though I don't use Twitter and I barely use Instagram. When I do Instagram, I'm usually, you know, on some half drunken rant talking about how people need to be better people or flipping the middle figure. It's funny. I actually should maybe use Instagram for the thing that I'm good at, like my choreography. Um, mm-hmm. I have a couple of links on YouTube so you can look that up. Most of the work is very esoteric. <laughs> um, it's really funny that I look at the work now and then I look at what people are doing now. Like I've been looking at whole, Jay-Z's whole creative content for his album. I've been like, I've been like pulling YouTube videos and putting them into dances for like two years now. And now that he is the artist that he is, he's using it. I'm just like, was Tony Bellissimo right in Brazil, right? Am I just really that so ahead of my time? Where now I'm looking at work and I'm like, this like almost looks exactly like something I just did. If anything, I think it's a good thing. Yes, it is. It's, I think it's a great thing because now I don't, I, I don't feel like there, I don't need to have so much hesitation in what I'm putting my creative or what I choose to create. Um, but yeah, you can look at my links on YouTube. I'm saying this part. Look at Yusuf's YouTube because it is really a pleasure to watch. And especially as an artist, it's going to give you something unique and grounded. And I think that that's what we need the most to always contribute to the body of work we've seen and are inspired by. Mm -hmm. My last question. It's 150 years from now and you're chilling on a cloud. What do you want to be remembered for in the dance world? The better question is what I want to be remembered for in the world. Fine. <laughs> that I made that I made an impact. That that person, not only when they were alive, but after death, made a significant impact, like Bob Fosse. And I say that because you know the movie Sweet Charity. Everyone knows a rich man fruit. Beyonce used it for a music video, Forgive Me Body. At the time, Sweet Charity was such a bomb that he didn't get his next directing job for five years. It wasn't until Cabaret that he won the Academy Award, but he did that movie and it flopped because people weren't ready. And now, that is the most bit, dance, aesthetic piece in the world. And it all came from a man that at the time that he created it, people scuffed at him. Mm. So to me, like a Bob Fosse, he made an impact. He might have had a little bit of fame when he was alive, but now that he's dead, look at his impact. Make an impact. I want to acknowledge you for coming here and being so open and eloquent 
and letting us into a part of your journey because I can tell you sitting here like this is the thing that I'm so sorry that you went through it and at the same time I'm like that's you're I'm not sorry I think in probably the most I think probably in the most I mean I've been cursing this whole time I can be this candid right yeah of course Lee Daniel actually asked me this if you had him here he'll vouch for this Mm-hmm. Because he actually saw the original workshop of my show when Amda let me do it before I opened it at Elbert Hall, and before it goes to Canada next year, he said, "Now looking back on what happened, do you think it was meant to be, and mm-hmm. do you like it happened?" I said, "In some very, 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 very pause, very, very pause, very capital, very fucked up way." Yes, it was meant to be and it was meant to happen because what it gave me was a new catalyst in which to see creation from. And so for that, I almost in some very, very, very fucked up way (laughs) have to say thank you. A few of my afterthoughts, I definitely was up against a lot when I started editing this episode because I wanted to respect Yusuf's opinions and I also was scared to step on too many toes in the dance world. So that's one reason why I decided to blank out a lot of the names if people aren't here to speak and defend themselves, given especially that it's such a small community. um, I wanted to leave them out. I also chose to leave out the title of the tour that Yusuf was on because I found that the heart of this story is the topic of mental health and well-being when you're on a job and that can really apply to so many situations so many jobs that you can be on so I didn't want it to be um like hype over oh my god like did you hear on that tour I wanted it to really be about what artists go through and also not to take away from other people's experiences that may have been on the same job. I was just really, really, God, I mean, sitting there with Yusuf floored by how incredibly, incredibly intelligent he is, just to sit with a human that is so well-spoken and I think he he puts so many things so well into words that I... I haven't even formed in my own head on that level. I mean, it was just incredible. I definitely um, was a bit scared of this episode because I didn't want to create any upset. And I also stated some of my opinions, knowing that those are opinions, those are biases. But ultimately, I came to the conclusion that and Slash was reminded of You know, the reason I created this podcast was not to play it safe, but to bring people into that more inside world of when two people who have been in the industry for a while sit down and talk about it, what our real thoughts are. Not what the safe thing is to say, not what the most neutral thing is to say, but what our thoughts are. So I definitely invite you to discuss these topics, further explore them. I don't expect everyone to agree I never do and I mean really open to dialogue on it so we have the Facebook page it's just slash dance speak podcast facebook.com slash dance speak podcast you can start the conversation and 
I, I really hope that bigger issue, that bigger topic of our true well-being, mental health, can also be something that we can explore because it is something that's scary to talk about. It takes a lot of bravery. And in the dance world, when it's so easy to be afraid of alienating yourself by not always being up for the job, that's something where I think we need that safe space to heal together, to share our stories so that when people go through it, they know they're not the only one. So thank you for listening and tune in for the next episode. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to our Dance Speak podcast. For inquiries, suggestions, comments on your favorite guests, or who you'd like to see on the show, please email us at dancespeakpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-A-N-C-E 